Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Before the episode, let me quickly tell you about my new book. It's titled Measures of Success. It's a book that will help you react less to your performance metrics, every up and down in those. It'll help you lead better. It'll help you improve more. So you can learn more about the book by going to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com or you can search Amazon. It's available as a print book, a Kindle book. It's available through Apple Books. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, this is Mark Raven. If you like this podcast, you might realize I have a blog, leanblog.org. Did you also know that I have another podcast called Lean Blog Audio? And there I basically, occasionally, or as often as I can, I read audiobook style versions of blog posts. So you can go to leanblog.org slash audio or search in your favorite podcast place for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 289 of the podcast. It is October 11th, 2017. Joining me today are Kathleen Sharp, who is now currently the Director of Optimization at McLeod Health, and David Schoenwetter, a Medical Director at Geisinger Medical Center in Pennsylvania. And they're joining me today to talk about the innovative Geisinger Mobile Health Paramedic Program that they developed and piloted with lean thinking throughout. Kathleen and David will discuss why it was important to engage stakeholders in innovation, how they viewed and addressed resistance to change, why it was important to uh, test this concept, this idea in practice, and why it was important to measure results. They also discuss their lessons learned and some challenges along the way. So if you go to leanblog.org slash 289, um, you'll find a link to a Wall Street Journal article that has a nice summary of the program. The headline there read, paramedics aren't just for emergencies. And it said in part, in the Geisinger pilot program, mobile health visits can be requested by a patient's primary care doctor, a cardiology clinic, or after an emergency room or hospital discharge. Patients who frequently visit the ER are offered the option of being seen at home by a paramedic as an alternative to an ER visit and potential hospital admission, especially for conditions that can be treated at home if caught early. So I hope you uh, enjoy the episode. You can, if you go again to leanblog.org slash 289, you'll find uh, links to uh, news stories, uh, a couple of news videos, um, slides, a presentation they gave at the AME conference a year ago. Um, here in Dallas. So there's a lot to dig into. I hope you find this interesting and, and maybe it inspires um, some work of your own. So again, you can go to leanblog.org slash 289. Thanks for listening. Kathleen, hi. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting us, Mark. And Dr. Schoenwetter, thank you also for uh, being part of the discussion today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. So Kathleen, can you uh, maybe start off and introduce yourself to the audience, um, tell everyone a little bit about your background? Certainly. So I have a business administration background, um, so that's what my undergrad is in. And then I did complete um, my master's at Ohio State University, uh, and so I have a master's in operational excellence, and then continued on to earn my master black belt, and now I'm working on an advanced certification. Um, 
at the time we were starting this work, I was with Geisinger as a senior performance innovation consultant, providing support to that. And I'm now with uh, another organization, McLeod Health in South Carolina, but glad to be still connected with the work. Yeah, and I think there's exciting work um, for you both to reflect back on today. So I'm looking forward to um, hearing more about that and the role that Lean uh, played, you know, the connections between Lean and innovation. There's a lot of um, good stuff to talk about here today. Um, Dr. Schoenwetter, if you can um, introduce yourself and then maybe also give um, you know, some of the overview of Geisinger. Uh, sure. So um, I am uh, the current uh, director of the division of EMS in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Geisinger Health System. Actually, my undergrad is in chemical engineering from uh, Pennsylvania State University. Um, and uh, during that time, I uh, was involved in pre-hospital care as, a, as an emergency medical technician, as a paramedic, which actually was the impetus to send uh, myself to medical school. Um, graduate from Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in 2002, and then um, after practicing, uh, after completing my emergency medicine residency, I practiced for a few years, and then actually was fortunate enough to have a opportunity to. Um, do the EMS fellowship with um, the Fire Department of New York, um, the FDNY. So after that, I returned to Geisinger and have um, been in the uh, role. Titles have changed, but um, currently the role is both the um, division director and then I also um, am the medical director for the mobile health paramedic program, which we'll talk about today. Great. And can you give sort of an overview of, uh, of Geisinger for people, different parts of the country might not be familiar with the health system? Sure. Uh, Geisinger is an integrated health system in what used to be northeast and central PA. It's certainly grown like most health systems do um, to really cover uh, a large part of the sort of maybe the best way to think of it is the eastern half of the state of Pennsylvania, also into New Jersey um, with our um, partnership with Atlanticare um, in the South Jersey area. Um, we both have a um, uh, facility-based, you know, acute care platforms, a physician group with over 1,600 physicians, um, and a health plan. And... Um, We've been uh, involved. Geisinger's had a history of various uh, integrated, I'm sorry, uh, innovation activities such as Proven Care, um, and we've uh, had several other um, similar events uh, in the last decade. Um, and the program we're talking about today, the Mobile Integrated Health Program, uh, Geisinger's Mobile Health Paramedic Program, is is one of our uh, innovations for redesigning healthcare. Yeah, and I would, I would encourage people, um, just go do a Google search for uh, proven care. There's a lot of really interesting um, stories out there about um, what Geisinger has, has done uh, in under under that banner. And you know, back in my book, Lean Hospitals, um, I, I used an example of um, uh, Geisinger providing uh, guarantees on, on surgery in terms of guaranteeing outcomes that, that patients would not uh, pay for any um, complications or, or follow up on at least certain types of. I think originally it was orthopedic surgery. Uh, is that something that that Geisinger is? The actual, yeah. Originally it was um, heart surgery, so heart ah. valve surgery mm -hmm. um, up here, actually in the northeastern area, um, and uh, has since expanded to so many different areas, including even our proven uh, proven experience model now, which is from our proven care. 
um, and that's expanded to uh, spinal surgery. Um, so multiple products, if you will, along that line. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, innovative work happening and you know, we're gonna have a chance today to dive in you know, more deeply and into some of this work that uh, you, you were both leading and involved in. Um, but you know, I always like to ask people before we talk about the, uh, the program, you, um, that's the main topic today. Kathleen, how did you first get introduced to Lean? I'm not running for office, but I'm going to give you two answers. <laughs> so one is that my formal training um, was about 10 years ago um, when I, the organization I was working with decided that they wanted to go on the lean journey, and they hired a lean sensei to come in. And I was very excited that I was selected to be part of that, and I went home, um, told my husband about it, and he just smiled at me. He works for a, a engineering firm and he he said you know you've been doing lean for as long as we've known each other i've been teaching you um how to do that just without using the lean terminology so uh, my husband takes credit for me learning lean but formally it was it was through a, a sensei at work and and dr schoenwater how about you <laughs> i have a, sort of a humorous story that that way as well um so uh i guess perhaps i would i would say i never learned lean um i was doing involved in the innovative work that Geisinger had started under a, an initiative called Pride and got connected with an innovation consultant named Kathleen Sharp, who was working with us for our mobile health paramedic program and uh, very much just was using the lean methodology. And it was really a fantastic uh, experience because I can't even truly say I recall, quote, learning it. I think I have a certain amount of you know, just with an engineering background, a problem-solving um, mindset. But the the way that the program evolved with Kathleen's um, leadership on the improvement side, we really just sort of morphed lean right through the entire development of the program. Um, and so if I were, to, you know, Kathleen was frequently telling me similar things like, you know, this is just kind of how you do things, but oh, by the way, this is a lean methodology. <laughs> And I think we're so Kathleen is to blame uh, for <laughs> for dragging you into this, right? That might, might be a fair way to put it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're still talking to her. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Schoenwater, if you can, um, you know, let's kind of turn the conversation back to uh, the mobile health paramedic program. Can Can you give an overview of? Um, of, of that program and, uh, you know, what was some of the background? What was the, uh, the problem uh, being addressed with this uh, new approach? The goal of the program was to have a, a rapidly deployable, clinical, very nimble and flexible resource that can um, address patients' needs in a timely fashion. So we know one of the challenges in healthcare um, especially as our population ages and our disease burden increases, is being able to meet these um, needs of patients that you know sometimes develop unexpectedly, sometimes develop even to some degree expectedly, yet there's still a, a limited bandwidth within the healthcare system to manage it. And, and how could we deploy a clinical resource um, in such a way that um, we can alter the outcomes. Um, certainly the cost of care was an issue, but also the quality of the patient experience, um, perhaps more so actually um, those, those aspects. Using 
uh, EMS or emergency medical services, um, there was a, a sort of an inherent connection there because we think of, of 911 EMS or, you know, calling 911 for an ambulance as on-demand care. And we were, we work really to say, well, how can we um, change the system and be able to use the um, attributes of a 911 system or the attributes of those providers, but be able to alter outcomes. So historically, uh, EMS in the 911 market, um, they get dispatched, they provide assessment, stabilization where necessary, and they transport to the emergency department. Um, the, the, the question that we were posing is, you know, how can we utilize that same resource to have a different outcome because we don't want all of our patients to go to the emergency department. We certainly don't want anyone to go to the emergency department unless they're going to truly gain value from that visit in the emergency department. And that was the sort of the nidus of the, the concepts of how can we use these providers um, to, to just do, diff, do healthcare differently. It was definitely a, a disruptive change kind of model. And, and how much of that is driven by... Um you know, efforts at, at payment reform. In, in, in a classic fee-for-service model, the hospital would get paid every time a patient is brought to the hospital. I mean, how would you describe some of the dynamics that are, um, you know, encouraging or rewarding, you know, sort of, you know, appropriately keeping patients out of the hospital? We were fortunate. The program was really focused on, on the value of the care. So you're completely accurate in your assessment that um, the program itself, supported by a clinical enterprise, is not something that benefits a fee-for-service clinical enterprise. So clearly just bringing people in and, and getting what I always term the widget-based care, um, moving people through um, the, the process where they generate you know, charges and, and then you work through your fee schedule to figure out your reimbursement. Um, that was definitely the classic model and, and we know that sometimes that benefits patients the way it's structured and sometimes it doesn't. Um, this was very clinically focused. I mean, that was the beauty of it being a pilot. We really knew the target was to address utilization and make sure that patients were getting the most appropriate care. Um, the care that they were utilized was going to provide them the greatest degree of benefit rather than you know, pushing them into the standard systems that were already present. I think it's important for us to, to recognize that where we are in healthcare today, we've got our foot in two canoes. So it did take um, some courage on the part of, of leadership to support the program because when the program um, was successful and as we designed it um, to reduce emergency department visits, to reduce admissions, um, those are revenue drivers currently in the current world. So um, we were asking for support for the program for something that was also going to drive away revenue. So let's absorb some cost to drive away revenue. And um, I think that's a, a, you know, we give a lot of gratitude and uh, to the leadership for being willing to let us pilot this to demonstrate um, that this works. Um, and it does, so that we're ready for where payment is going. And, and can, you, can you maybe elaborate a little bit, Kathleen, on, um, you know, I appreciate hearing about, you know, the customer focus. Um, you know, were, th were there other lean principles that you had in mind in sort of the, you know, the initial assessment of the opportunity or the design of the pilot? Sure. So a few things that um, besides, in addition to being customer-focused, 
making sure that we were introducing pull is that as we were building the program, we were always looking at quality at the source and single-piece flow. So single-piece flow, when you're getting the calls in from a patient one at a time, is already established as part of the way that they provide their care. But when it comes to the documentation and when it comes to the measurement system, making sure that we're gathering that as we go rather than batching that, which often happens in healthcare, we did a couple of things to try and make sure that single piece flow was established from the beginning. And we didn't use, I didn't use any of that terminology, mm-hmm. um, but introducing that as let's build this into the work. How can we make sure that at the end of the visit, we've got everything wrapped in a bow? Um, and so the, the paramedics um, embraced that and helped us develop that. Also, you know, a key lean principle is the people doing the work were actively involved in developing the mm. workflows and refining the workflows. Um, that was not something that would be... Um, a nice to have and you're going to have input after we make these decisions for you. They actively daily and several times a day would give us feedback on um, suggestions and ideas that they had that would work um, better and smoother for the patients, uh, better and smoother for them. And then we would look on the backside to see as we aggregated the data, how did that play out? And they understood their, their own performance and the things that made it better for patients, which allowed us to accelerate very quickly in the development of the program. Yeah. And of course, I didn't understand any of that terminology when we were doing it, so I couldn't be biased. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. The, 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 challenge, the challenge and the, the beauty for me um, is it forced me to uh, think about how do I introduce the concepts and the terminology, um, uh, the concepts without the terminology, and um, really have the value and be clear in myself of why is this particular approach or this tool set or this concept, does it really apply? Yeah. Because and, this was an audience that was not going to be impressed with black belts or clean <laughs> um, <laughs> credentials. Still aren't. <laughs> <laughs> But they were going to be um, taken by value. Yes, correct. It was going to provide value. Well, and it sounds like you know that that value when you're focusing on um, the customer, uh, the patient, Dr. Schoenwater, Maybe you can elaborate on this. You know, the idea of you know the right care at the right place at, at the right time. Um, how you, you uh, I guess you know how it was determined. Um, you know, in, in certain instances, what is the right care in the right place? Uh, yeah, so some of that was iterative, so we didn't always know that. I think that was one of the um, uh, other real strengths of the program was we certainly knew we wanted to be able to intervene clinically. We wanted to be able to do that rapidly. Um, we wanted to have patients not, you know, I think the right place we hear about, you know, the um, to Kathleen's point, you know, we were um, asking to do something that would drive people away from standard revenue sources like an emergency department. Um, but there was really the, the concept that we, we wanted to make sure we focused on um, what did the patient need. One thing that was really a huge advantage to the program during its development 
was um, unlike us, you know, some things that develop in medicine, a lot of medical care that is volume-based, um, the processes tend to develop to, man to maximize the amount of volume that can be done. Um, the paramedic program was built with capacity in it so that there was a lot of flexibility with our providers to be able to address the needs of the patient. So we didn't always know going in with every single patient encounter what was going to be needed, but we had built in the flexibility, the resources, the connectivity, so that the people rendering the care to the patient were able to address what was needed by the patient at the time. So rather than sort of being a, again, a widget box of if you come here, you will get this, and if you happen to be in the wrong place, you'll get this anyway, and then we'll try to get you to the next place. Um, you know, they were able to really tailor care moving through the whole process that was very, very patient-focused. We, we invested the time up front to also identify what, what were the attributes of the program, not just the outcomes, but what, what were the characteristics of the program that were going to be important from a service perspective, from a workforce perspective, what were those, and again, I didn't use the terminology at the time, but I did an adjacency mat matrix to determine who are, the, who are the different roles that would be touched by this program that or impacted downstream that we might need to reach out to so that we could make sure that our service um, was integrated um, without competing or duplicating. So that was one of our key attributes, and then we looked in the adjacency matrix. That was one of the categories that we used to to say who might see this as um, uh, complementary, who might see this as competition, um, and that that served us very well. As we talked with other programs across the country, that's a gap that some of them um, realized a little bit later that they might be seen, seen as competition with home health. Yeah. Our home health agency loved this program because we um, were able to communicate with them early on and figure out points of integration um, that were supportive of one another. Because, I mean, this is a, a, a much higher level of, of care, more serious situations than would typically be part of ongoing home health, correct? Um, I think the as an emergency physician, um, I always like to separate out acuity and severity because a lot of times in healthcare we just apply the word acuity to both. Mm. So yeah, this was acute episodic care, which means the paramedics are almost part of medicine, or I'm sorry, the paramedics are part of emergency medicine where we focus on acute episodic care. And, and acute could certainly mean things like acutely short of breath and, you know, not getting enough oxygen and being hypoxic and really needing emergent life-saving care that can be acute. But if you if you wake up today and your ear hurts really bad, um, we may all agree that you're not going to die from it. But it's today and it's acute and it 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 happens to be severe pain. But you know that was the focus of the program was acute. And then the key was to develop that integration back as the patients slide between their acute episodic needs and their chronic care and wellness and, and really bridging those gaps. The paramedics were very focused just like a paramedic is trained um, and all EMS providers are trained. Um, they really focus on acute episodic things. 
um, because they were dealing with diseases that um, are chronic diseases with acute episodes like congestive heart failure, they certainly received training from the teams that manage these problems chronically. Um, we had tremendous support from Dr. Dadamani, uh, Dr. Sanjay Dadamani, who's the director of heart failure for the Geisinger Health System, who really embraced the program as a tool to help his patients that certainly have a longitudinal disease but have these acute exacerbations of it where they need, you know, rapid, and how we would define rapid um, varies, but, you know, rapid clinical intervention, assessment and intervention. And so those were the, as we were sort of putting the program and saying, where is this going to fit? Where is this going to add value? Focusing on the strengths of emergency medicine and, and, and um, the paramedics themselves is to respond to those acute needs, things that are happening today, defining the episode then, of course, for, you know, some episodes are literally 10 minutes long, and then some episodes stretch out over days. But it's still the bridge between those acute episodic events of the patient and then back into their um, steady state, if you will, for the management of their chronic health problems. Yeah. And, and, and the uh -huh. paramedics also served as a bridge to strengthen and bolster the relationship with their primary care. Um, which is which is not how we typically think about a paramedic's role, um, because we think of them as the point between, often traditionally, the point between care in the home and the emergency department. Here, they're really providing that integration with their primary care physician, their care manager if they have one assigned, um, and other services such as their cardiologist. And it becomes part of an integrated team, which Geisinger is well known for. Yeah, Kathleen, can you tell us um, as you were going through the uh, design of this program, working toward pilot, and what were some of the ways? I mean, you mentioned some of the lean concepts, but was there a lean process incorporated into this this innovation approach? Yes. So, so this will be very familiar to lean practitioners. So behind the scenes, um, we started with a charter which was very familiar across Geisinger. So that was well um, uh, inculcated into the um, how we do any type of improvement work in Geisinger. But the behind the scenes, um, I had my uh, had an A3. Um, we did um, did capture what's the current state, which was helpful in understanding. Uh, this was my first exposure to working directly with paramedics. Um, up until this point, I didn't know the difference be between different uh, first responders, so I didn't know the difference between a paramedic and an EMT. I now understand that difference. Hmm. Um, understanding where we needed to go to, so in doing that a gap analysis, um, doing a force field analysis of uh, where we thought resistance points might be, and walking... Um, through through questions through an A3, um, which just really helped us to um, make sure that we were hitting the right, um, solving the right problem, that we had the right measures in place, and that we were meeting uh, the de deliverables and had the understanding and the support mechanisms from our um, stakeholders. So right. stakeholder analysis, again, a, a very common uh, mechanisms uh, for lean practitioners to use. Um, we had those things in place. We 
we also, uh, one of the things that's important for us to do is introduce that failure is an option. This was not going to be an Apollo 13 approach, that we uh, wanted to um, be willing to try, pilot some things, do very small tests of change, uh, fail forward, um, and uh, learn very quickly and recover quickly. And um, that that was not something that um, in other programs they might be as comfortable with. Mm-hmm. It might take them a long time to get up and running. We, we went from um, concept to piloting this within a matter of months um, because we we already had that acceptance um, of being able to accept a limited degree of failure. Not good failure. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's good failures. I mean, I always, you know, I, you know, I think there's the idea of small failures help prevent large failures. And, and I think that's part of right. the thinking behind running a pilot. Um, so, you know, Dr. Schoenwater, can you maybe talk about some of the thinking or some of the approach about why it was important to do a pilot instead of just doing a big launch. It's probably tempting for people to say, oh, we've got something innovative. We want everyone to benefit. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think one thing in healthcare too is uh, specifically is that once you start talking about big launches, um, not only, you know, you really get get into, you, you'll quickly find yourself in the weeds of, Every standard barrier of healthcare, right? Regulatory, financial pressure, legal analysis. Um, I uh, hopefully um, you know, Ron Beer, uh, who is the chief administrative officer at the platform where the paramedics are based, has been a tremendous proponent, and hopefully he won't be upset with the comment. But he, um, you know, he said to us as we were working on this, he said, you know, this program's great because you guys said, look, we need three people. And, um, and and Kathleen and myself, and, and we just need this, and we're going to go ahead and try this. He said, normally people come to me and say, hey, I have this awesome pilot. Here's what it looks like. All I need is, you know, 25,000 square feet, $3 million, <laughs> and 50 full-time employees. Can we get can we get that? And then I'm going to do this great work. Um, and, you know, and he said, and, and those kind of things, you know, as you were just pointing out, Mark, I mean, to, if you're going to commit to that, you really do need to have a very thorough analysis of what's going to be your return on that. Um, with our pilot being pretty small, especially in the Geisinger sort of scheme of things, um, the administration was very willing. As you know, we had a we certainly wasn't we weren't just uh, throwing spaghetti at the wall. We clearly had a plan. Um, the plan seemed reasonable. We had stakeholder engagement, but we also weren't asking for this massive infrastructure that was going to require you know so much analysis and and future planning and build out and. Um, you know, even our ability to navigate through the electronic health record for the system, because it was so small and confined to a few people, um, really made that process a lot more expedited. And so, really, that by using the pilot model, um, we were able to, I think, do a lot of what Kathleen was just saying. People were willing to say, "Okay, well, we're not 100% sure this is going to work. We may not even be 99 or 90% sure it's going to work, but." You're going to be a small, nimble group that's going to be able to do something, evaluate it, see if it worked. If not, change it and continue through that process. Yeah. You know, sort of the class, classic TDSA cycle, which I didn't know that term either when we started, but we learned that as we went. Some, one of you used the word iterative. I think Kathleen did. And 
you know, as you as you start small, you said you don't have 100 percent confidence. Um, were, were there what I mean, what were some early lessons learned in terms of some things that were tried with the best hypothesis um, behind in thinking behind it that just didn't uh, didn't play out the way you expected in the pilot? So one of the early lessons um, was in how we prepare paramedics for this particular role. And so we've, with having three um, very um, interested, enthusiastic paramedics that were engaged in this work, they were able to tell us, here's the things that you have left out. We need to have a little bit more information about um, what you expect of us in the home and who, who else, in addition to the patient and their family member and their pets, who else um, should we be contacting? Um, we had listed as a, as a key attribute that we want them to strengthen and bolster their relationship with their PCP. It would be really helpful if we, if we knew who the PCP was and how to get in touch with them. They have the electronic medical record available to them in the home, but we didn't have contact information. So there were a lot of very simple things that we learned. Um, how to use the technology, it um, took us several weeks to figure out how can they do that real time in the home and how do we get the technology to work? How do we predict where it's going to be more of a challenge for them? Mm. And so the, the paramedics taught us um, those elements, which was very helpful because as um, when you have any type of turnover or somebody goes on vacation, you have somebody filling in, um, that allowed us to build the standard work. And again, we didn't call it that. We called it our workflow. We just, we just used terminology that they already used. Um, we were able to build that into the workflow so it was much easier for someone else to um, fill in if needed. Mm-hmm. And Mark, I'd, I'd like to add that the paramedics were so enthusiastic because with such a small work group and, and just being right there on the front line, I mean, it was them doing the work every day and then really just Kathleen and I, and then we would go to our, you know, our, our um, sponsors, our executive leaders or whomever if there was an ask, but I mean, they were so engaged because you know, literally when they said, you know, we need to do this this way, you know, it was fixed in, you know, as you know, long as a day or as little as 10 minutes. I mean, they were able to just really be so immersed, which, of course, is, is the, the very much on the, the lean mentality. But they were just so, in, so immersed in making this better because they really were empowered. I mean, it's a small program. It wasn't like, you know, trying to move the way a health system um, – you know, prints out their name bands or something that's done just throughout an entire enormous organization. Right. I mean, they were doing this new work in this small group where, as they learned, it kind of goes back to your question about the value of the pilot, you know, as they were learning this works, this doesn't, um, this is smooth, this is not, um, this is not a great way to get in touch with people, we should do this instead. I mean, we were just able to implement those things, though they were able to implement those things, you know, in a matter of a 24-hour period, it really just took took the email going through so that all three of them read it, and then the, the, the standard work had changed in such a way that they, they could do their job better. So part, part of the, the building of the program included not only what were, the, what were the clinical steps, what were the technical steps they needed to take, but we taught, they were taught improvement concepts, again, using language that made sense 
for their work. You know, so I wasn't throwing a lot of lean jargon at them. Um, if, if the work that made words made sense for the work that they were doing, and they were able then to to adopt PDSA um, cycles very quickly. And paramedics, by their training and by their nature, do PDSA all the time. Mm-hmm. They they learn how to um, to plan, evaluate what they're going to do for a patient. Um, try something if that doesn't work. Make make those rapid adjustments. So it was it was very easy for them to embrace PDSA thinking. And and one thing you know I love about the story you're telling here is you know the the ongoing engagement. You know I think you know as you've alluded to a change model that's more effective than just telling people what to do. Getting their input, having them be involved in the design and improvement of the approach. Um, I'm curious in your discussion with the stakeholders, um, you know, involved particularly the paramedics and or EMTs, and, and personally, I'm still unclear on the difference. But did you get pushback from them about saying, uh, in in some way, that's not our job, or I don't feel uh, that they could do that type of care? What I mean, did did you get pushback, and if so, how did you work through that? Well, just to be clear, we, we only use paramedics, and there is a big difference between an emergency medical technician and a paramedic. Um, in rough numbers, a, a, an EMT, depending on the state, can have anywhere from 100 to 200 hours of training, and a paramedic is roughly 10 times that amount of training. So it's there is a large difference, and we only use paramedics. Um, and I'm sure Kathleen will have um, – Kathleen was great because she really worked directly with the paramedics constantly. Um, and until the very end, Kathleen's mantra was, look, you know, I'm here to help you with the process. I'm not giving you the clinical advice. I don't know how to take a blood pressure. Now, in the end, the paramedics got tired of hearing that, and they actually taught her how to take a blood pressure. So <laughs> then she could no longer say that. But um, but it, it was really, um, there was certainly some of that. But I think the way, and I give Kathleen a lot of credit, the way that she approached um, the problem solving is you, you there I think might have been some initial uh, almost knee-jerk response to hearing some of these things that well this isn't really what we do as a paramedic or but it didn't take long to realize that okay well what the ask is really isn't that complicated or if it if it seems complicated let's just break it down into smaller pieces um, and it didn't take long before there really was not uh, a significant amount of pushback. The, fi- the final thing I would say is, you know, Mark, what was really interesting is what I think very commonly, at least in healthcare, I see, what's what's really pushed back is, is just a lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you're right, like a lot of times that's what gets viewed as, oh, people don't want to do it, they don't want to engage. Well, the truth of the matter is they don't completely understand what they're being asked. Yeah. So nobody likes to fail. You know, we talked about that already, but so when you're, when you're, not really sure what you're being asked or how you're being asked to do it or or what even the end game is, I think it is very common to say, well, that's not really my job. This person should do it. That person should do it. Because we were able to, to be like, look, we're all pulling together here. Um, Kathleen had us huddling, and I didn't know the significance of that at the time, but, you know, we were having these huddles, and, you know, we were all just getting together. It really became quick. The paramedics were able to flip between the concept of, it became quickly that it wasn't that they were saying, I don't think that's my job, but it was just they were pointing out problems, and pointing out problems was a good thing. That wasn't pushback. That was just right. identifying that that's a barrier. 
can we get around that barrier? If we can't, what should we do differently? Yeah. And, and Dr. Schoenwetter and I would have conversations about um, pushback, and um, he gave a lot of um, room and latitude and, and acceptance to make it safe for them to surface problems. You know, because for lean practitioners, one of the things we can often get caught up in, um, a pet peeve of mine is when I hear people refer to resistance as something to be overcome. Right. Because resistance is just more information in in an unpleasant form. But it's Mm -hmm. information. And if you take it in that way, um, you can learn, you know, is there something that you miss? Is there something that you are going too slow or too fast with? Um, if, is is it a lack of clarity um, that yeah. you need to, to do a better job with? So um, we we encourage them to surface issues. For the paramedics themselves, they are very good at assessing situations and giving report. So there's a certain level of safety that was built in, but when there were problems with um, the program that they thought might um, – make me feel bad about the program, I had to help them understand that it is a gift for you to share with me where um, standard work that I've helped develop didn't really help you, you know, um, give you clear directions on where to go to see a provider's name but not providing good valid phone numbers for you. That's a problem I can Mm -hmm. take care of behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. and so I don't want you to feel that you are offending anybody it it just is right. and it's something that we need to address and we'll take care of it and so it developed a high degree of trust as well as accelerate how fast we could iterate many of the changes that we made um, the paramedics would say this is an issue I want to change that now and I've got another patient that I'm going out to see in the next 30 minutes and we said go for it yeah. you know so um, that's that's the power of that. You can accelerate your learning, um, and we had the appropriate safeguards in place. Right. You know, certainly, yeah. I was not going to comment on anything clinical clinical that mm-hmm. they wanted to change. Yeah. Well, I think you know everything you said there. Um, you know, re- really glad to hear that, and and a lot of that goes back to the mindset, uh, the spirit of lean, not just the specific terminology or or methods but the idea of um, accepting feedback and engaging respectfully listening to see as dr schoenwetter said is it uh incomplete information lack of understanding or is it an opportunity to uh to iterate and and make things better because um yeah it's a pet peeve of mine i think it's similar to what you were saying there kathleen when people uh, complain about resistance to change. They're they're often looking for a way to make them do what I want, you know, instead of um, <laughs> really truly taking input and making something better. So we've talked about approach. Um, can you talk about some of the results? You know, how did you measure the impact of um, you know providing care at home, being patient focused, um, you know, trying to uh, you know what were the outcomes you were aiming for? What did you achieve? The um, the primary results we were looking at is an adjustment in utilization. So what were these folks' admission rates, readmission rates, ED utilization, um, total cost of care, um, avoided services. Now, avoided services, anybody in healthcare will tell you that is a tough one. 
when you try to figure out what you've saved by not doing something. Um, you know, how do you know you are not going to do it? Um, those type of, of things. But and then the other part of it that you know we we certainly had safety. Um, one of the strengths of this program um, was that they paramedics had direct access to the final clinical decision maker. So one example of that is when they're dealing with heart failure patients, they were either dealing with the nurse coordinator, um, who I, I can't say enough about. She's just been fantastic and a real strength to the program. But um, they were either dealing directly with her right to the cardiologist or they were dealing directly with the cardiologist themselves. So they were able to really um, have a direct pathway um, to get the information, the treatment, the guidance, um, all those things to ensure patient safety. Um, so th that was a, an, an outcome. And then finally was, of course, the patient satisfaction, the voice of the customer. So, um, and because of the structure of the program, I, I do, I, I will almost admit, I think we kind of cheated. I mean, by the very nature of the, the program, you're talking about just three individuals, um, during the hiring process, we were clearly looking for individuals who were comfortable doing this work, and they're paramedics, so they're used to being in people's homes, and um, we generally didn't have them on the, the type of time crunch that many other healthcare providers are under, so they were really positioned to get outstanding patient experience results, and then they delivered. I mean, we, we have just had fantastic patient experience results. And, and we can... Uh, I mean, you've given a couple of presentations. Can I share some of the uh, the outcomes charts uh, on the blog post for this episode? Sure. Because that, that'll give people, when they get the opportunity, a little bit more visual uh, look at that. Kathleen? Sure. Yeah. And so um, while this was not an objective or a deliverable, we weren't looking for um, attention or awards. Uh, we We did receive both. So the, the Wall Street Journal did do a, a feature article on the program, um, and it was recognized as the Emergency Medicine uh, Innovation of the Year um, in 2015, um, and was also recognized, uh, Geisinger was recognized as um, one of the most integrated, um, innovative healthcare systems um, based on uh, recognition for this particular program. Mm -hmm. So... Um, things that we're, we were very um, proud and pleased to see that acknowledgement, and that's not something that, you know, that was not a deliverable that we were um, actively seeking, but um, certainly we appreciated the recognition. Yeah, and I'll, I'll share links to um, the Wall Street Journal article, other stuff I can find, uh, TV news story uh, about, the, um, about the program. Um, so you had initial results. What, what are you doing to um, help with sustainment of um, the program, of, of the results? Um, what, what would you say, Dr. Schoenwetter? One of the things that is the, 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 a thrust now is to find out where is this expandable. So what are we doing and then how can we you know, do more of where we're successful? We're also trying to, um, you know, when, when Kathleen was here, um, the results that is the data itself would magically appear. Um, turns out she actually had to do that, but I thought it was just magic. Um, however, uh, we're working on automating those type of things now so that rather than um, those that stuff being generated, it's just going to be automatically generated for us on a monthly basis for our ability to track. Automagic, right? 
Yeah, on a magic <laughs> Exactly. Um, and then um, we're looking to find out where we have better opportunities to integrate between our care team and the patient. So the we don't feel that we have maximized the capacity of the program. Well, I'll go one step further to say we've we've done the analysis and we're not maximizing the capacity of the program. So we're going to um, really target where our, our clinical and patient experience yield is and then focus on getting to the providers because um, this is really a dual resource. I mean, it's clearly a resource to the patient um, and one that the patient really embrace. I mean, we just we don't get negative feedback um, from the patients. Um, and it, it, that, that sort of passes the sniff test because if you think about it, if you're a patient, assuming you're a patient who wants to be in your home, um, you know, the fact that the care comes to you in a non-harried manner um, is, is, is just intrinsically something patients are going to value. Um, but really also adding that value to the provider where, you know, I think a struggle of every healthcare provider, whether you're a physician, a case manager, a nurse coordinator, um, an advanced practitioner is, is how, what, what resource can really help you get more done because there's an infinite amount of work to do. Um, and, and really we're going with the program, how are we going to be better at interfacing with the providers to, to give them another resource to help their patients? And when you talk about expanding the pilot, um, I, I apologize if, if you said it and I missed it or it was unclear to me. What, what were the boundaries of, of the pilot and, and are, are you still figuring out the expandability or has it been expanded beyond the pilot? The biggest um, uh, limits, if you will, to the pilot was geography and timing. So we did it with three employees and um, based out of uh, one um, town, the town of Pittston, Pennsylvania. So um, you're just geographically kind of restricted with, with three folks and one vehicle and, mm -hmm. and traveling, how far can you get? And in rural Pennsylvania, that can really be a challenge. Um, so when we talk about expanding, the, the question is, how do we move into different geographies? Um, and do we expand into different patient populations? Um, those are the types of analyses we're doing now. So as we as we uh, wrap up here, there's a couple other you know things to touch on. Um, before wrapping up with some thoughts on on lean and the approach here, I mean, what, other than figuring out the um, opportunity to spread the pilot, what what are the um, you know kind of upcoming next challenges uh, related to this? You know, the the, the challenges I think are really. Um, based around this continuously evolving, you know, healthcare model. Um, it, it, it's just, you, you know, Kathleen has already said it, you know, there's the, the fee-for-service and there's the value-based payment systems. And in reality, they're, they're just not very inter interoperable. I mean, you're, you're really kind of stuck with doing it one way or doing it the other. And as people are trying to figure out how to do that, and, the, and it seems like the tide changes... Um, you know, everybody philosophically wants to go to a value-based payment system, but nobody's completely sure how to do that, and certain resources are very much more lent towards value-based, and certain resources are very much lent towards fee-for-service. Um, one of our challenges is going to be staying positioned um, to be um, responsive to those changes um, and making sure that we're able to continue to provide. We know we can provide clinical value, so just being able to um, make patients um, care and their experience better 
Um, that's not as much of a challenge. The, the challenges are where is that going to fit in to a healthcare system that is is so multifaceted? It's care delivery, it's finance, it's experience, it's all it's geography, it's all these different things. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, you know, Kathleen, coming back to you, you, I think you alluded to this, or you know, you both did during the discussion here. Um, there was a phrase you used in the presentation you did for AME Stealth Lean. Can you? Kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Oh, sure. So um, again, I'll I'll give my my husband credit for for that. Um, so it's basically using the language in a way that is not going to um, distance yourself from um, the audience that you're trying to reach. Um, so I was using uh, the concepts and the tools and the principles. Um, Across Geisinger, Geisinger has a very rich history of improvement and innovation. They're very strong in that in, in a number of different methodologies. At the time we were building the, the program, um, the organization had not um, selected any particular methodology. Um, and so um, I didn't want people to be distracted by, oh, is that a lean tool? Is that a Six Sigma tool? Is that theory of constraints? Is that appreciative inquiry? I didn't want that to be the dialogue. I wanted the movement of the work to be um, the focus. So um, I put aside the the lean um, terminology, but used the concepts and the principles um, that were appropriate to apply to this particular um, set of work. Um, and And it was very effective. It was a great learning for me. Um, the organization um, now has um, adopted and embraced lean as their primary improvement methodology. Um, so uh, the language is much more comfortable um, and, and used throughout the organization, and it's being uh, very well embraced. But I didn't at the time we were doing this program, that would have been a distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, in my role um, at McLeod, I'm using what I've learned um, through that and am not um, using heavy lean terminology here, even though it's an organization that has also embraced um, the methodology. And uh, I'm finding that um, I'm getting a much better response than when um, I was throwing out a lot of lean jargon. You know, and Mark, it's 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 funny because uh, Kathleen gave me a copy of your book, which I've enjoyed re- enjoyed reading. But to you know, as I'm reading it, and I'm it was just as I'm going through each paragraph, it's like, oh, that's why we're doing that. Oh, that's why we did that. <laughs> and that's why, kind of, you know, because it was truly not you know brought up at the time. It was just, and you know, to me, fortunately, it just made sense. Um, uh, so uh, as as Kathleen was uh, em- embarking on her stealth lean approach, uh, we were really just doing the things that were getting done, what needed to get done, and having great success. So we were happy with that. And then I had the fortune of reading the book and saying, oh, okay, (laughs) that's where all that stuff comes from. (laughs) Then now we can connect the dots um, looking looking back. Uh, Now, I was going to ask you, Dr. Schoenwetter, do you, uh, I mean, what, what, you know, because this was new to you uh, as you were going through this process. I mean, what are your thoughts now about Lean and, and I asked partly because you know there there are some 
uh, physicians who've written articles, commentary in the last couple of years being very negative about lean, that it's it's not appropriate and uh, it's just not a fit for healthcare. It seems like you have experiences that suggest that that is a fit. Um, I mean, how would you summarize your thoughts at, at this point? Well, that, that's an interesting, really interesting point. Cause, I mean, I certainly pushed back with Kathleen on certain things about the fact that, you know, patients are patients. We're not making... Uh, we're not making filing cabinets, I think, because I loved that filing cabinet company model there. Uh, you know, we're not making filing cabinets. and But I think the the win is when you really talk about, well, what is a process? So, yes, the patient is not a filing cabinet. That's absolutely a true statement. Um, and they don't have four sides, and they're not all the same color and all this sort of thing. But um, the, the parts that were very um, just so value-add to me was – there are still so many opportunities. Kathleen used the term target rich. So we have just so many opportunities um, to improve the processes. And that, that really doesn't, it impacts the patient. It clearly impacts the patient. That's why you're doing it. But to improve a process doesn't mean that you must therefore pigeonhole the patient into, well, you, you, the patient better be like your filing cabinet. I mean, the patient can still be the dynamic, um, multifaceted, um, um, person that they are, and you can utilize lean. Now, unfortunately, you know, I do still get my own mi mixed up with the terminology here and there, and Kathleen has to try to straighten me back out. But, um, you know, some of the things that we talked about, like huddles, and, you know, I, I don't know, I don't even know if when Kathleen finally used the actual word Gemba, but, mm -hmm. you know, we you know, we spent all of our time at the front, at, you know, at the Gemba. I mean, we we did all of our work with the three paramedics where, the, you know, in their office in Piston, where they were preparing to do all the things that they did. And, and so we were really always doing those kind of things. And so, therefore, I think when it's done in that fashion, um, the other thing I, I don't mind disclosing about my own profession is, yeah, sadly, um, physicians – um, you know, maybe I'll give this advice to other folks who are doing improvement with lean. You know, physicians, um, I, I would say, are inherently resistant to everything. Um, so it's, I don't know if that's something that is a part of our, uh, evolves out of our med school or just who gets into it. But so I, I, I find all the time that people are inherently just kind of resistant to these type of things that sort of want to um, protocolize or, you know, make a, standard work, if you will, or, or make anything kind of standardization to the fact that you have to deal with another human being. That's what you do. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't really mean that you you can't use it. And, and we've, I mean, I feel like we've demonstrated tremendous success actually using it. We've done, we've done much better care for our patients than we were doing, which is in no way to imply we were doing poor, but mm -hmm. I mean, you can still see just the measurable improvement that we were doing. Um, and and I, I give a lot of credit to the the lean improvement methodology for being able to cycle through this and do the iterative approach and continuing to make things better and better. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the methodology, but you know, that methodology is used by people. So it's the, the creativity, the initiative, the tenacity of, you know, people who are involved uh, in work like this. Um, that's, that's, I think that's key too. Yes. And for the lean practitioners, I, I would challenge them that when they are um, getting that resistance from physicians, take it in as information in its most unpleasant form. Are you being clear enough? Um, is there another um, way that you can 
approach, and are you really um, responding to the value that the physician is trying to get out of whatever that initiative is around? So it, it that that resistance made I think made me a better um, lean facilitator. And you know I think that's that's really um, that's great advice. You know to to be respectful, take in that input. And uh, and work with people, you know. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. You know, working with people, working with organizations. Something can be uh, factually true. Something can be technically correct, and that doesn't mean uh, it easily or, or quickly gets accepted. And and you know, I'm saying this is human nature. I'm not trying to pick on the doctors, but if you look at the history of, um, you know, kind of you know, how slowly certain uh, advances in medicine were adopted. I've heard this rule of thumb that says it often takes 19 or 20 years for um, something to be really adopted in a, a widespread way, whether that was um, antibiotics or even, you know, like the one example I think of was, uh, you know, Frank Gilbreth. Uh, it was probably Frank and Lillian, uh, his wife working together. You mm-hmm. know, they filmed surgical procedures and they had a suggestion to the surgeons say, hey, you shouldn't waste time digging around for your own instruments. You should have somebody uh, hand them to you. They called this a surgical caddy. And, you know, they famously presented this to the American Medical Association Conference. And it was somewhere in the range of 20 years before the AMA officially adopted and endorsed that as a good process. Uh, So it's just, um, that's something that we have to, you know, get better at um, working through and, and I think engaging people and really talking with them instead of trying to roll over them. Um, at least to me, that's, that's the best strategy. I agree. And, and although I don't mind picking on my own profession, I, I think I'll also give it some credit. You know, physicians do really see themselves in healthcare as an advocate for their patients. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think it's just a true statement that the way healthcare has evolved in the United States, I, haven't seen much international, so I can't talk to it. But, you know, the way it's evolved in the United States, there's so many different factors that are not advocating for patient. Mm-hmm. So I yep. want to make the statement that some physicians aren't stubborn because they're just stubborn. No. But I think a lot of them are really, you know, they're resistant to the change because they've seen plenty of changes that have come along that have not really benefited their patients. And so they're resistant to someone, and I give Kathleen a, a great deal of credit in the way she approached it, that they're very resistant to people who are not clinicians mm-hmm. um, appearing to give them advice. And yeah. the truth of the matter is once we um, – I, <laughs> Kathleen may say differently, but I don't, I don't think that was a particular pet peeve of mine. But, um, you know, when, when you really focus on the fact that I'm here to help you with your processes, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Um, and it's your process, so I'm not even telling you how to do your process. I'm just here yeah. to help you make that better. Um, that's that's much easier to get adopted. Dr. Schoenwater, yeah, you're you're right, and that's that's a fair um, counterbalance to um, you know the, the the history and doctors there. Um, yeah, I wasn't trying to paint doctors as uh, being uniquely resistant to change. I, I think it's you know it's just kind of common. Um, you know, it's just human dynamics. And, and you know, I think back, oh, if, I if, if Gilbreth had had a surgeon present that idea to the AMA instead of him presenting it, I wonder if it would have been accepted differently. Very possible. But even, you know, ironically, sometimes uh, the, the, the ones we are most resistant to are the other physicians. So it's really hard to know, I, I think. Um, but, but no, yeah, I, I think any, any folks with improvement, it, it's not that we are... Uh, physicians are any different, but I, I think that they 
I think the physicians do really at their core um, see themselves as, as um, uh, even without the, you know, paternalistic and some of the other things we've had in medicine for which um, we've been appropriately criticized, I think um, physicians really do see themselves as an advocate and they need to be advocates against policy change, they need to be advocates against technology that doesn't really help people, medicine that doesn't really help people, all these different things. And when someone shows up and says, I'm here as the change person that's going to make everything better, they're just, you know, not that you know, imply that people do that when they're a change agent, but if you are perceived as having that kind of approach, it, it inherently uh, generates that skepticism and the patients feel like they once again have to be sort of the cavalier protector of their patient. Um, where, we, you know, again, to reiterate, you know, with, with Kathleen's approach for sure that, you know, look, these are, even with the, forget the physicians, even with the paramedics, these are your processes, these are the people you're taking care of, you need to do the work. Let's talk about how you're doing it, and is this the best way to do it? Can we do it better? How will we make it better? How will we be more efficient? And then the outcome results, I think, really have to, you know, I'll be honest, you know, it's been hard in a lot of cases to measure outcome results for patients. And so providers just assume they're doing the right thing. Uh, once you were able to look at outcome results and say, huh, that really wasn't the outcome we were looking for. How do we go back? How do we change it? How do we do things differently? Those type of things. Yeah. And and Kathleen, do you have anything to add? Um, kind of on that thought, we'll we'll wrap up here. Give, give you the last word, I, I guess. That's great to wrap up this this um, uh, my work with this program with the last word, Dr. Schoenwetter. So there you go. I'll say um, something when you're done. Person. Don't worry. <laughs> I'll make sure you have the last word, Kathleen. <laughs> <laughs> As we ran into um, different elements of this um, where we weren't coming at this from the same point of view or maybe disagreed on, on the approach, one thing that was very helpful is that we had embedded a measurement system because you only have one day one of capturing measurement, and we didn't want to be looking in the rearview mirror, so that really helped with building credibility with Dr. Schoenwetter and it's helped me in my career with, um, as I work with other physicians, that um, I'm speaking in the language of data. I can't speak clinically because I don't have the, that skill set. Um, but, you know, leading with um, respect and wanting to help and um, being clear, uh, making sure that I'm checking in, uh, that we have the same definition of what, how we're going to define value and then supporting that with a measurement system that can provide data and then um, allowing that to evolve and really critical that we had a good solid feedback loop. So um, as the paramedics would call me and ask me a question about process, sometimes that would overstep into something that I wasn't sure if that had an, a clinical impact or not. So we developed a very quick um, rapport, and so he knew I wasn't going to be overstepping um, guidance or advice that I was giving operationally um, to go forward. And that, that went a long way towards helping us to uh, work through any other um, items that we might disagree on, such as who might have the last word. <laughs> well, I wanna, but uh, now you know how to take a blood pressure, so... <laughs> 
Well, I want to thank the both of you, you know, for one, the uh, for, for the work that you did, two, for, for sharing it with folks, and, and three, for sharing it uh, here on the podcast with us today. Really great to hear about the story, the results, the approach. I think there's uh, a lot to learn from and a lot to inspire others. Um, Dr. Schoenweiter, thank you for being part of this today. Oh, thank you very much for having us. And Kathleen, thank you for uh, being part of this and helping initiating the opportunity to do the podcast. Very honored to do so. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.